James chapter 4 this morning, please. James chapter 4. And we'll begin reading in verse number 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? But he gives more grace. Therefore he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother... Speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray as we wrap up this section that we started last week, I pray you give wisdom and help. I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, forgiveness for anything that Father hinders effectiveness this morning. I pray for ears to hear, that there'd be no distractions. And I pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. Help us, Father, to rejoice in the wonderful truth in this passage and to learn from it today. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in this group that in some specific way needs something from this, I pray, Lord, you'd apply it to their heart just exactly as they need it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began looking at this very same passage, and for those of you who are visiting with us today, we don't normally like to do that, but there was more here than we could really get into one sermon, and so you're coming in the middle. But uh, we started looking at this last week, and we attempted to answer the question, whence all the fighting? And so today's sermon is, whence all the fighting, part two. And what we're trying to do there is just answer the question that James asked in verse number one, when he said, where do wars and fights come from among you? And perhaps those of you who were with us last week will remember that uh, we said James, uh, we, we, we tried to divide up what James said in uh, three different sections. Verses one through four, we said, talked about conflict and its causes. Verses 5 and 6 talks about conflict and its cure, and then verses 7 through 10, the absence of conflict, what it looks like. We looked at those first two to a certain extent last week, and today we want to look at that last point. As we considered that first point, conflict, its causes, we saw that James described four main causes to conflict, right? He talked about selfishness and prayerlessness and wrong motives and divided loyalties. And whether or not James is here writing about conflict within a local church, which he might have been, or whether or not he was writing about the conflict that takes place within our own hearts all the time, which he might have been. He might have been writing, and most likely was writing, about both of these. Regardless, he says those are the four main causes of conflict. 
amongst us and amongst our churches. Selfishness, prayerlessness, wrong motives, divided loyalty. Verse number one, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Selfishness. Verse number two, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Prayerlessness. Verse number three, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Wrong motives. And verse number four, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Divided loyalty. We also, though, moved on to point number two last week, which was the cure for conflict. And we just talked about it a little bit. And we said the cure for conflict is mentioned in verse number 6 in that wonderful little phrase, but he gives more grace. The cure for all this is not something we can work out. The cure for all this is not something that we can invent. It's a gift. It's the gift of God, the grace of God that he pours out freely to all who believe. We sing it so often, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Yes, he gives more grace. More grace. Ever increasing grace. Grace upon grace. Grace that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Grace. It's a wonderful, wonderful, amazing truth. If you came away from last week's sermon, and and I I can imagine that some might have come away this way. If you came away, uh, you know, depressed at the black picture that James paints of our hearts there. And he does paint a pretty bleak picture there in the first four verses. But if you came away that way after last week's message, I fear I may have failed just a little bit. Because I was hoping that you would go away rejoicing. At the wonderful gift of grace that is the solution to it all. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, it's been called. Freely given to those who believe. Grace. David Jeremiah says, Mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve, but grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. Grace. It's what saved us in the first place. Acts chapter 15, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Titus chapter 2, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace. It's what prompted our loving God to send his only begotten son to the cross to save your soul and mine. We see Jesus, Hebrews said, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Grace. It is what enables a righteous and holy God to forgive my sin. Ephesians chapter 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Grace. It's what enables us to serve God. Paul said to the Corinthians, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on. But let each one take heed how he builds grace. There is no sin, no sin so bad that God's grace cannot forgive. 
And no matter how much of sin we have, God has more of grace. It is an inexhaustible fountain. The Bible says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Can we not say hallelujah this morning for the fact of grace? The beautiful, inexhaustible, wonderful, glorious, undeserved truth that James encapsulates in that one simple little phrase. He gives more grace. It's wonderful truth. In looking through my tears one day, I saw Mount Calvary. Beneath the cross there flowed a stream of grace, enough for me. While standing there, my trembling heart, once full of agony, could scarce believe the sight I saw of grace. Enough for me. When I beheld my every sin, nailed to the cruel tree, I felt a flood go through my soul of grace. Enough for me. And when I am safe within the veil, my portion there will be to sing through all the years to come of grace. Enough for me. Grace is flowing from Calvary. Grace as fathomless as the sea. Grace for time and eternity. Grace. Enough for me. Paul said, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace In his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Praise the Lord. Can we even say, praise the Lord? Can anybody say, praise the Lord? So we've seen conflict its causes. And we've seen conflict its cure. In the last few minutes this morning, I just want to briefly look at the last few verses here, verses 7 and following. And I want us to notice the absence of conflict and what it looks like. Because once the grace of God is working in our lives, some things will be true. So let's notice those just briefly this morning. First of all, verse number 7. I would suggest that one of the things that will be true is your aim changes. Your aim changes. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Remember what James is talking about in this passage. He's talking about fighting. And you'll notice when we get to verse number 7, he's still talking about a fight. But something's different here. Something's different. Here's a fight that continues in the life of a believer. But when the grace of God is working in our life, we turn our guns on the right enemy. No longer fighting God. No longer fighting each other. Now, James says, it's the devil that we fight. And resist. Still fighting, but now fighting the right enemy. Now fighting the true enemy. Do you remember the story of Gideon in the Old Testament? Gideon, one of the judges, Judges chapter 6 and 7. Gideon, the one who put out the fleece before God. Gideon, the one who God used to re, uh, win a mighty battle against the, the Midianites, the, the land of Midian. Uh, Gideon with his ragtag army of 300 people. You remember that story? It's one of the great miracles in the Old Testament that God, against the numberless hordes of Midian, won this great victory with just 300 men. But did you know that in the midst of that, 
One of the things God used against the Midianites was that they found, when, when they found themselves surrounded by Gideon's army of 300, they had no idea it was only 300 men, and they became so terrified and so upset that they turned their swords upon each other and fought each other. Did you ever notice that? Judges chapter 7, verse 21, every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and thus... They destroyed each other. Somewhere in my archive of illustrations, I have the story of a football player. I've probably mentioned him to you before, and I, his name escapes me right now. He's really only known for one thing that I, that I know of from many years ago. Uh, he's known for the fact that in the midst of a very important play and a very important championship game, he received the ball to run, got all discombobulated, and turned around and started running toward the wrong goal. Everybody was screaming and hollering, trying to get him to turn around. He thought they were cheering him on, and he ran, scored a touchdown for the wrong goal. You know, apart from the grace of God, we're fighting the wrong enemies. Apart from the grace of God, we're running for the wrong goal line. We fight each other. We fight God. Certainly not our enemy. He's the one who loves us more than all the others. But when the grace of God comes into our life, our aim changes. And we find ourselves now directing our efforts against the right adversary. Against our adversary, the devil. James says we submit to God and resist the devil. Now that word resist literally means take a stand against. Amy talked about this this morning as she was sharing a little bit in the song service. It's the very same conflict that Satan about against Satan that's described elsewhere. Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. It's the same conflict Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 5. Resist him, the devil, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Jesus showed us how it's done in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4 when he went through a temptation with the devil. You can read that on your own. It's important to remember, and I think Amy touched on this too, that when we resist the devil, it's not a one-time thing. He flees from us once, doesn't mean he's gone. He'll be back. When Jesus resisted him, Luke chapter 4 said, When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So we need to look forward to continued skirmishes, but every time we need to stand. And we can only do that by the grace of God. In the Battle of Little Round Top at Gettysburg, the Confederate army continued to march up the side of that hill over and over and over and over until our ammunition was exhausted, until it seemed they would never stop coming. And sometimes that's the way it feels with the devil's attacks on us. Oh, but we need to continue to stand steadfast in the faith until that glorious day when that stinking devil is going to be thrown into hell. But here's the key point. When the grace of God is at work in your life, your aim will change. And you'll be fighting the right enemy and not the wrong. Number two. James says, when the grace of God is working in your life, your actions and your attitudes will change. Look at verse number 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When God's grace is working in you, what we do and what we think will change. Our actions, our attitudes will change. Cleanse your hands. Hands are the outward instruments of action. Purify your hearts. Hearts are the inward source. Of all impurity. So we'll think differently. We'll act differently. We will set our minds on things above. Not on things on the earth. 
as Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2 says. So your actions, your attitudes change. Number three, your view of sin will change. Look at verse number nine. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Your view of sin will change. Now, at first glance, we look at that verse, and it might seem that James is painting a picture of Christianity there that, you know what, a lot of people believe Christianity is. That it's joyless, that it's cheerless, that it's laughless, that there's no fun to it whatsoever. Somber, boring existence, no laughter, no joy. That would seem to be what he's saying at first glance. But, oh, that's not what he's saying. Not at all. Consider how the New Living Translation renders that verse. It puts it like this. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. That verse is not teaching there's something wrong with laughter. It's not teaching there's something wrong with joy. It's not teaching that Christians should never smile or laugh. But rather it's very specifically teaching us that we ought to mourn over our sin. It's talking about the fact that a Christian in whom the grace of God is working will mourn over their sin. Their view of sin will change. Jesus talked about the very same thing in Matthew chapter 5, his Sermon on the Mount, when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We'll be sorry for our sin. One man said, while gloom is not a Christian characteristic, mourning over our sin is. Sorrow over our sin, what it costs our Savior is an indication the grace of God is working in your life. John Piper said, Our business is to weep over our sins. And the grace of God at work in our lives helps us to remember that we were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. I wonder, Christian, when's the last time you wept over your sin? When's the last time? You mourned over what it cost the Savior to save your soul. You see, when the grace of God is at work in our lives, we see sin for what it is, for what it cost. How can we not weep? Number four, James says, when the grace of God is at work in your life, your selfishness will become God-centeredness. Look at verse number ten. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. Your selfishness becomes God-centeredness. Verse 1 spoke of selfishness as being one of the major causes of conflict. Here in verse number 10, it speaks of the absence of the same as being one of the indications that God's grace is working in our life. When God's grace is working in our life, we think less and less of ourselves and more and more of God. We think less and less of trying to exalt ourselves and push ourselves forward. And more and more of humbling ourselves before God and allowing Him to work in and through us. So our selfishness becomes God-centeredness. And finally, number five, verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Your treatment of brothers and sisters changes. Your treatment of brothers and sisters changes. Now, it's quite possible that verse 11 should be the topic of another sermon. That is a paragraph break here in James and we are starting a different paragraph there so maybe it's a completely different flow of thought for James but I think it fits here I think it fits well here when the grace of God is at work in our lives our treatment of each other will change the backbiting and the evil speaking and the gossip and all the other sins of the tongue that James talked about back in chapter 3 they're going to be diminished they're going to decrease as the grace of God works in our life
Because now we live in Ephesians chapter 4 that says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Charles Spurgeon said, Let this be our family motto and our personal bond. Speak evil of no man. And so your treatment of brothers and sisters will change. So let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Whence all the fighting? That's the question. Where do wars and fights come from among you, James asked. And he said, well, they come from your selfishness. They come from your prayerlessness. They come from your wrong motives. They come from your divided loyalties. But all there's a solution. And that solution is the grace of God. I wonder, have you experienced that in your life? Do you know the grace of God that sent the king of the universe to die on the cross to save your soul? To pay the price for your sins? To give you forgiveness full and free? To provide for you eternal life? To save your eternal soul? Do you know that grace? If not, you can know it today. The fact that it is grace means that it is a gift. We saw those words used interchangeably in some of the verses we read. And as a gift, all you need to do is reach out and take it. That's all you need to do. And so may I encourage you to take it today. To let nothing stand in your way. To listen no longer to the devil who would tell you to fight against the one who loves you the most and who is offering you this gift of salvation. Take it. Receive it. It's yours in Christ if you'll but receive it. And you can be saved today and live forever in the grace of God. And when you do that, James said, your aim will change. Your actions and your attitudes will change. Your view of sin will change. Your selfishness will become God-centeredness. And your treatment of your brothers and sisters will change. May God help us to live in that grace.